We would like to interrupt our regularly scheduled program to deliver a Muriel's Murders announcement. Listen, I ordered this book online that isn't in electronic form at all. Mm -hmm. It's a, a print book, which I rarely use. <laughs> And it took a thousand years to get delivered. Well, so that's because just, it's rare and special also. Okay, it's very special in that there's no Kindle version. <laughs> well, it also, it's not an Amazon book either. It took forever to get here. Yeah, it was a whole thing. I think they printed it just for me. <laughs> okay. But yeah. uh, I got it, and then I read it. It was great. And I'm going to do a two-part episode, and now it's Tuesday night. Right. And I don't have time to finish it. Okay, so that <laughs> means that today we are re-airing one of our classic episodes, maybe our most celebrated one yet, and we'll be back next Wednesday with all that good freshness. Yeah, and it's a listener request, so get ready. Hold on to your butts. Who was it? Oh. Okay. <laughs> Let's just don't do I can't believe you're acting like that right now. Also, if you happen to be one of our regular listeners who can afford five bucks and you haven't subscribed to our Patreon or Spotify feed, go do it now because you'll get about 50 new episodes unlocked just for your greedy little fingers. <laughs> so we'll be back next week. Uh, but today, enjoy this one from the vaults originally titled Frank Lloyd Wright. This puppy was on Bellow Collective's list of 100 outstanding podcasts of 2021. And, you know, it's still one of our favorites. It's 2023. You know, this one's this one's a banger. It's such a banger. If you thought you knew Frank Lloyd Wright, you don't. Unless you already heard this podcast. Yeah. All right. <laughs> See you later. Enjoy. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, in honor of our new Patreon member from Chicago, we talk about architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Okay, all right. See, I like this because this is one of the only architects that I'm actually familiar with. He's like the most famous one, right? Well, <laughs> the, like American one. Is he? I think so. Oh, okay. I thought I was special. I thought I knew about someone kind of cool and under the radar. His style is very like sharp and angular, which makes me think of Knives and Murder. So I'm scared. This is going to be... <laughs> I like the way your mind works. Very, Thank you. It's like nice and simple and clean. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to give a lot of love to that new Chicago Patreon sign up. Brad, thank you so much to Brad and the whole crew over at Pizza Fried Chicken Ice Cream in Chicago. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting Muriel's Murders on Patreon. Yes. And remember, this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Also, just as a heads up for our more sensitive listeners, this particular episode is a little violent. There is violence against children. So if you're sensitive to those kinds of things, I would suggest uh, proceed with caution. Okay, wow. I'm glad I heard that. Now I have no idea what to expect. But also, ladies and gentlemen, we will probably curse a little bit. So if you don't like foul language, please keep that in mind. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay, let's get started. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I've been housing this iced coffee, so I was already a little jittery, and then you gave that extra warning disclaimer, and now I'm nervous. You're nervous? Yes. So proceed gently with me, Muriel. I think a lot of these things are really subjective, right? Like I thought that some of these would be like really hard for people to listen to who are sensitive, and they've been like, oh no, it's fine. Right. And then other things are scarier. This one, I guess I think is scary for you, but so far you haven't had any... Nightmares. Yeah, any nightmares or worries. <laughs> yeah, you give me enough of those during my waking hours. Oh, <laughs> how dare you? All right, let's get into it. All right, so Frank Lloyd Wright. Yes. He's an American architect, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he is super famous. I thought he was the most famous architect. You were thinking that he was niche? I don't know. I mean, I know nothing about architecture and I know him. So yes, he's probably the most famous. That makes more sense than my version of it. Okay. Well, (laughs) this man has an incredibly storied career. We're not going to cover every aspect of career. Uh, Most of this is going to be focused on like family life, a little bit of career, but mostly his his personal life. Okay. So apologies to people who are huge Frank Lloyd Wright fans who are tuning into this podcast. You'll get a little bit, but not a lot of maybe what you're looking for. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so Frank Lloyd Wright was born June 8th, 1867 in Richland Center, Wisconsin to William Carey Wright and Anna Lloyd Jones. And he was born just two years after the Civil War ended and was originally named Frank Lincoln Wright after Abraham Lincoln, who had just been assassinated. Whoa. Okay. All right. And then they changed his name? Later, they changed his name because his mom, Anna, is a wrecking ball. <laughs> we'll get into that later. <laughs> what, what happened in her life that where she decided, uh, actually, Abraham Lincoln is not someone I want you to be associated with? Boy, you have to wait till I tell you the okay. story. <laughs> Don't ask me future questions. All right. Okay. Okay. Okay, Frank Lloyd Wright's parents actually really deserve a little bit of time because they're super wild and pretty interesting. All right. So Anna, his mother, was from a really well-known Welsh family who had immigrated to Wisconsin and had settled this big valley in Wisconsin and was responsible for spreading Unitarianism in the region. Oh, really? Which at the time was actually a super radical religion. I mean, it still is kind of. I mean, I get that it's like kind of like peaceful, hippy dippy on some level. But if you get into that, that's pretty radical. I mean, it's radical in that they're like, you know, don't worry about God. (laughs) (laughs) But they're still like come to church and let's like be spiritual together. Yeah. I mean, I've been to my grandma's Unitarian. You just go and like listen to, you know, people say, hey, be good in these ways. (laughs) (laughs) I consider that revolutionary. (laughs) Okay, All right. Yeah. It was pretty revolutionary at the time. So. Frank Lloyd Wright's dad, William Wright, was this super handsome guy, mm-hmm. really charismatic and really bad with money. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how he's characterized. But he was also this crazy talented musician. Like mm-hmm. he used to build his own violins. Uh, he had all of these different musical instruments he used to play. Whoa. He started out as a lawyer And he held a bunch of elected county positions. Like, Mm -hmm. wherever he went, people were really into him. Yeah, right. Some sort of natural-born leader. Right. And then this is back in the day where you could be like, I'm a doctor. And they're (laughs) like, okay, great. He's like, give me your money. Whoops, it's gone. (laughs) So he had all of these professions, musician, whatever. And he ended up kind of landing on Baptist minister. And the way that they hooked up is basically he was married 
first and his wife died mm-hmm. and Anna was a school teacher in the same town and he decided she was the one. She's kind of the stern lady. She mm-hmm. knows to deal with children. She's <laughs> around the right age. So she's always been this kind of stern matronly woman yeah. who's considered to be a spinster at the time. <laughs> Just scaring people into Unitarianism. I don't know. Yeah, they're not very... <laughs> a lot of this is funny because it's like very editorialized. Uh-huh. You know, it's like she's unmarried and Welsh and living in Wisconsin and they're like, mm, she's a matron. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Right, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that was sure. so true. But they got together. They had their first kid. That was Frank at the time, Frank Lincoln Wright. Yeah. Um, so that was her favorite child. Yeah. Hands down. She had two other biological kids. And then also she had stepkids from William's first marriage. But Frank Lloyd Wright or Frank yeah. Lincoln Wright was her favorite child. Got it. Um, he, she used to paper his walls with architectural drawings. She would buy him these special geometric blocks to play with. Really? Mm-hmm. She used to be a teacher, you right. know, so she was teaching him kind of all the time, educating him, telling him he's destined for great things. Wow. And he was. Yeah, he was. And, you know, his dad was also super talented. Right. They birthed a little genius. Yeah, right. I will say, I actually love Frank Lloyd Wright stuff. Yeah, his his architecture's... I'm going to sound stupid if I try to explain it. I was like reading all, I've seen it, a lot of it, and I've read about it, but the terms that they use to describe it, I'm like, oh, buttresses. And you're like, (laughs) I'm not going to lie and say I know what that is, and I'm not going to look up a picture of a buttress. But they're very (laughs) geometric, right? right? Uh, He was known for creating, I think, the prairie style of home. So the idea is the outside has these like geometric kind of fortress-like outsides, Mm -hmm. and then the insides are kind of, characterized by big open floor plans yeah they're meant to center the family you know Mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. as like the center of the architecture so it's like open floor plans you see everyone that kind of thing well i've been inside several frank lloyd wright houses in oak park and we even went to a service at a unitarian church at the big church he designed out in oak park also and it's all stunning he does these really cool like stained glass window things that's sort of mostly what i associate with him and i think one time in new york we might have seen a an exhibit of all of the different offices he had designed for people like they flew them all in and we get you can walk through all these famous and rich people's offices that he did yeah pretty incredible they're really beautiful um so anna his mother was a tyrant to all the stepchildren. So she was pretty much basically known to violently beat all the stepchildren. Oh, God. She was pretty crazy. Her least favorite stepchild, Lizzie, she doused in water one time in the middle of winter and then threw her outside to let her clothes freeze to her body. Oh, so she's straight up torturing children. Yeah, like her William, her husband, sent away his kids to go live with relatives because Anna was so intense with them. She kind of didn't care about, he had two sisters yeah. uh, that he didn't care. She didn't care about, uh-huh. but she was very focused on Frank and then yeah. the stepchildren. She was just a complete monster too. Like Damn. at one point, you know, the way this is, is that Anna comes from this really, you know, well-known family, this Welsh family yeah. in the Valley. And so they're pretty tough and she has a lot of brothers. Mm-hmm. And so William had to go to them and be like, okay, is she insane? Yeah. And <laughs> they're yeah. like, don't you ask us that question. She's yeah. just passionate. You know? yeah, so right. he's, he's kind of 
you know, decided to bend to that and just send his kids away to live with aunts and uncles. This is going so against the grain of how I envision Unitarians to be. I know, I know, <laughs> yeah. I know. I was like, all right. I mean, everything is always weird when you when it's old timing. Yeah, right. They hadn't quite like incorporated all the Buddhist teachings that I <laughs> happened to hear in my very limited exposure to Unitarianism. Right, right. So William decides he wants to support the family by being a Baptist preacher, right? Which is a little weird because it's not Unitarian, but he wasn't Unitarian to begin with. So he traveled around the country trying to make a living being a Baptist preacher. And there are lots of ups and downs, but the gist of it is Mm -hmm. that he made the family go broke. (laughs) They had no money. He's terrible with money. That's not what I was expecting. (laughs) I think the gist of it is he landed somewhere, was incredibly successful. (laughs) No, they were broke AF. They were super broke. So eventually William is in his 50s. They have no money. Mm -hmm. And he renounces baptism after preaching baptism for a very long time and converts to Unitarianism in order to move back with Anna's family, yeah. the Lloyds. He's like, the money's in this Unitarianism. Yeah, so. and get money, basically yeah. to get some financial support, not mm-hmm. just to preach, but just so they'll take care of them. Sure. Like, they were so broke that at certain points, her brothers used to show up with wagons of food for the children because yeah. they would be like, you're not providing. Right. You know, and actually they got there he converted to Unitarianism and then he had a big pout. So for a while he decided not to be a preacher and to open his own music school, which also went horribly broke. (laughs) So he settled on preaching for the Unitarians at the end of the thing. And that relationship fell apart. Uh, Anna's notoriously uh, difficult. (laughs) 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 <laughs> that was a very diplomatic way of saying either the B or the C word. <laughs> She's notoriously difficult. And William is just a little bit of a wiener. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. in a way, he's incredibly talented and charismatic. But he also is like, well, you're mad at me. So I'll just send my kids away. You know? Yeah, right. And I'll yeah. just be a Unitarian. That's yeah. my editorializing. But yeah. then he shows up and. Their marriage has basically fallen apart. And one day she just snaps and she's like, you're living in that room over there. And she kicks him out of the bed and she says, you're not my husband anymore. (laughs) So they live like that for a little while. And then finally he decides to leave the family when Frank Lloyd Wright was 14. And he leaves the family and divorces Anna for, quote, emotional cruelty and physical violence and spousal abandonment. Damn. So Frank Lloyd Wright had a pretty difficult childhood and i mean that's a brutal age for your parents to split up yeah yeah and Wright actually never saw his dad or spoke to his dad ever again really that's the last time he saw him so he didn't just leave his wife he left the family yeah he bounced he went back to his original kids (laughs) he just was like ah and then when he died he got buried next to his first wife which we liked a lot better okay um (laughs) and actually frank lloyd wright said later in Life, he said his dad's life was a vain struggle of superior talents against untoward circumstance. Oh, so he he thought the world was cruel to his dad, not that his dad was inept. That's what that means, right? Yeah, I think that generally speaking, everyone thought his dad was really talented, yeah, but just not not functional, right? Yeah, whatever that means. I don't know how bad his circumstances were. I think it was just like. The world is the circumstance. Yeah, right. That's what I mean. Life. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah, It wasn't anything too bad. He just made terrible decisions. Yeah, right. So Frank Lloyd Wright has no record 
of college or high school degrees. He didn't graduate from high school, and it looks like he only went to one year of college at the University of Wisconsin, um, where he studied engineering. So he never formally studied architecture. He did a series of lucky breaks, and he was a great artist and he was a draftsman for people so he's he did stuff and like yeah I'm sure he was showing like incredible talent at a very young age to his mother when she was giving him the blocks and like probably fostering whatever sort of inclinations he had yeah and in 1888 at 21 years old so he's Mm -hmm. not that old he started his first major job in an apprenticeship at Alder and Sullivan in Chicago which was a really big architectural firm you know what's crazy to me when I think of Frank Lloyd Wright's work I'm not like don't know any of the history of it Mm -hmm. I consider it way more modern than this I know which makes his really timeless in this way yeah it, it, I always think of it as more modern too I mean to think that yeah. he was born right after the Civil War I know. Has ended that's so crazy it's like damn this fool was old <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's really impressive yeah so 1888 he's in Chicago and he's working for this famous architectural firm and People say he was pretty hard to get along with. He actually had several violent fights with other draftsmen who like worked in the same department. Muriel, I forgot this was a murder podcast. Oh my God. I was sitting here just like listening to this uh, architectural history. So he's violent. Wait, can I ask a future question? No. Does he murder people? <laughs> oh my God. Does he get murdered? Is that how he dies? Why are you so <laughs> I'm sorry. I just drank all that iced coffee and now you're just like. <laughs> All right, you have to rein it in, man. Okay. I'm not there yet. Wow, I really don't know, but he is violent. Okay. <laughs> so he's he's violent. Like, he gets into fights with people. Mm-hmm. He's kind of an, a jerk. Uh-huh. And then Sullivan, one of the partners, was also kind of a bastard uh, with people. And Sullivan ended up mentoring Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm-hmm. So they hooked up and he helped him, you know, develop his professional life. Mm-hmm. So in 1889, Frank Lloyd Wright married Catherine Lee Katie Tobin and settled down in Oak Park, Illinois, right on the corner of Chicago and Forest. Wow. And I know that place, so I feel really in the know. I know. Uh, That's where my grandmother lives. So Frank's formidable mother, Anna, Mm -hmm. followed her son and she moved right next door. And Anna hated Kitty. He hated his new wife. I guess I could have saw that one coming. Anna legitimately fainted at their wedding. Oh, no. And she was so terrible to her that Kitty used to hide in the closets to avoid her while Frank Lloyd Wright was at work. She would just pop it in the closet if Anna came over and just wait there until she left. And it sounds like Frank was just as scared of her as his father was. No, I don't think so. They were just really connected. As far as I can tell, I don't think it... The stuff that you hear, mm-hmm. you'll hear more stuff, and I'll okay. read you like some of the letters that he wrote to his mother. Uh-huh. I think that they were just... I was going to say connected at the teat, but that seems really <laughs> intense. Well, I mean, it's pretty intense to not stand up for your wife or protect her or make her feel safe. Right. But it's old times. It's 18, 1888. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess you all know? the women were probably hiding in closets from someone or We couldn't at the time. vote <laughs> for like 30 more years. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so just like, you know, I don't think it's that crazy. Right. So everyone back then was either a kitty or an Anna. Yeah, right. Now, Alder and Sullivan, the firm, Mm -hmm. didn't actually officially design houses. They designed commercial spaces. Mm -hmm. But for wealthy or super important commercial clients, they Mm -hmm. would design houses. Oh, like their personal homes? Yeah, exactly. So Frank Lloyd Wright was kind of in charge of that 
branch of the firm. So that's mm-hmm. how he's got started in residential houses. That makes sense to me where he's like saw his father not be good with money and like, let's have congregations of all these people and I'll make my money having a church. And Frank is just like, you know what? How about I just work for the literal rich person with money right there? Well, wait for it. So Frank Lloyd Wright was like his dad in that he was absolutely terrible with money (laughs) and a huge spender. So he's always short on cash. He doesn't have money. Uh, So he started designing these like bootleg houses on the side for extra income oh. which was totally against his contract he had yeah. a five-year contract with alder and sullivan yeah. and he wasn't allowed to take any work outside the firm but he had started designing these houses damn and they were early examples of his personal style there was still a lot of like what he learned under sullivan but mm-hmm. there were little elements mm-hmm. that you could start to see particularly the band of windows do you remember those those are so cool it's like kind of high up on the wall there's like a long short window yeah they're like a band of horizontal windows right and then the open floor plan thing Mm -hmm. were both things that he started to pioneer in his bootleg houses Mm -hmm. and then in 1893 sullivan recognized one of the frank lloyd wright houses obviously dude i think it was like a friend of his (laughs) so he fired him Uh and sullivan and frank lloyd wright didn't speak for 12 years um so after that he started in 1893 launching his career independently and then by the early 1900s he was living and working in oak park he had six kids with kitty and he was known for driving his clients wives around in a sports car (laughs) and that's you know i don't (laughs) want to accuse anybody of anything (laughs) yeah right it was just a signature move of his yeah very signature signature (laughs) move really nice classy guy okay that's what we're thinking so One of Frank Lloyd Wright's neighbors, Edwin Cheney, Mm -hmm. and his wife, Mama Borthwick Cheney, they hired Frank Lloyd Wright to design their house. And by 1909, Frank Lloyd Wright and Mama had run away to Europe together. (laughs) So Mama was born in Iowa in 1869, and she had two kids with Edwin, Martha and John. And Mamo worked as a translator. Mm-hmm. She had actually been pursued by her husband, Edwin, for 10 years before she finally agreed to marry him. Was he super ugly or was she super hot? That's a good question. I, have one more I don't question. know if I would frame it like that. <laughs> I think he was like really mild mannered. Uh-huh. Uh, he's been described as bald with dark eyes, okay. but really uh, a very kind person yeah. kind of a really mild mannered not necessarily easygoing but mm-hmm. like placid mm-hmm. okay what were okay. you saying and what mama yeah spell it for me m-a-m-a-h that name doesn't exist anymore yeah unless we're really wrong if anyone listening knows a mama spelled that way or spelled anyway for that matter please let us know i kind of really like that name but it's almost so far gone that it doesn't really sound like an a, an American name from that era. Well, it's Mama Borthwick. I just really, it's a great name. <laughs> she didn't stick the landing, I guess. No, I love it. I Borthwick. think it's great. And it's like Mama sounds like a Game of Thrones princess or something, and then Borthwick sounds like a, a Bannister men from some lesser known house. All right, so we're okay. gonna get started. Okay. Great. <laughs> You're so into Game of Thrones. I know, I know. So old at this point. (laughs) All right, so... Says the woman telling me about Frank Lloyd Wright. (laughs) uh, So she's been pursued by her husband, Edwin, for 10 years, Mm -hmm. right? During this time, she gets her master's degree. She's really tepid about marrying him. But she's starting to reach 30. She's Mm -hmm. 29, and she's just like, well... 
I guess if I don't get married by the time I'm 30, I'm going to bust into a pile of dust (laughs) and die, (laughs) right? So she marries him. And in 1903, the Cheneys moved to Oak Park. So by 1909, they've got their house designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Great. Mm -hmm. And Mama and Frank have this full-blown public love affair. Everybody knows about it. Edwin Cheney accepts the affair without any fight, Mm -hmm. right? Mama wants a divorce, and he doesn't grant it yet, but he's pretty much like, yeah, whatever you want. Sure. And Frank goes to his wife, Kitty, mm-hmm. who from now on, because she's a full-grown woman with a bunch of kids, yeah. we're going to call her Catherine. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. Very respectful. So Catherine, and he asks her for a divorce. Mm-hmm. And Catherine says, give me a year. I just want you to reconsider this. You can go off with Mama, do whatever, but give us a year to see if we can reconcile. So she won't give him a divorce. Mm -hmm. At the end of 1909, Frank Lloyd Wright leaves his family and his practice, and he takes Mama on a European tour. So he borrows as much money as he can. He sells all of this valuable artwork and everything that he can sell. And he tells his 13-year-old son, David, that... David, you're the man of the house. And he left him with a $900 grocery bill. Oh, my God. Which David is still mad about 70 years later. Well, he should be. I mean, I guess it's just history repeating itself, right? I mean, he left his son at basically the same age that his father left him. Yeah, right. And with the $900 grocery bill? Know, Come on, right. man. Don't even give your kid that. It's like, what are you trying to prove here? So in Europe, Frank Lloyd Wright does a bunch of stuff for his career, including publishing a retrospective of his work. He's way too fancy and way too storied for me to talk about everything he's done. Mm -hmm. He's a super cool dude. If you're interested, look him up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we're going to go on to kind of the more personal part of the story. But he did do a lot of cool stuff in Europe. And so did Mema. She translated a bunch of works from the Swedish feminist and stayed out there for a while. Uh, Oh, interesting. So they were really... Interesting yeah, people. just like an intellectual, scandalous couple just yeah, tearing yeah. the continent up. I don't want to get too far into it, but yeah. like they talk in the book that I read, um, it talks a lot about how his father, William, and Frank Lloyd Wright were both really into the writings of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Mm-hmm. The idea of personal freedom and Mama was kind of into feminism and free love and both of them felt like marriage as an institution was unnatural so they it wasn't just necessarily like cheating a lot of it was philosophical (laughs) sort of they were philosophically linked and they definitely had a reasoning for why they felt like they shouldn't have to be around their husbands and wives and their kids (laughs) yeah they were like i love this philosophical position we can take that really justifies leaving everyone behind to fend for themselves i mean it cuts both ways because in some ways you're sitting here saying like why is kitty hiding in a closet right and it's because of all of those you know societal norms that made it difficult to just be a human being on the planet that long ago. You know, there's so many things, these puritanical things that you had to do. You get married for a certain reason. You get married when you're 21. And then by the time you're 40, you're just like, ah, I mean, it's like, (laughs) how did I get here? (laughs) This is not my beautiful house. Whatever. We've been struggling like that as a people forever. right? Yeah. So, In 1910, Frank returned to Oak Park Mm -hmm. to try to salvage his career and his family. Because at this point, 
him leaving Oak Park had like devastated his career, you know, because he had given away his his architectural firm to mm-hmm. some random guy. <laughs> he yeah. really did. Yeah. And he was he sold all of the stuff off. He like he cashed in on his life yeah. out there. And now he had to come back and he wanted to rebuild it mm-hmm. and start his practice again. And he writes this letter to his mother before he gets back to the States. Okay. Okay. I am the prodigal whose return is a triumph for, in all caps, the institutions <laughs> I have outraged. A weak son who, infatuated sexually, has had his passion drained and therewith his courage. And so abandoning the source of his infatuation to whatever fate may hold her, probably a hard, lonely struggle in the face of the world that writes her down as an outcast to be shunned or a craven to return to another man, i.e. Edwin, his prostitute for a roof and a bed and a chance to lose her life in her children. While I return to my dear wife and children who all along, quote, knew I would and welcomed by my friends with open rejoicing and secret contempt. Why must this be so? I enclose the letter written a week or more ago to Catherine, telling her the basis upon which I wish to come to my work and the children. I think it is well you should know of it. Damn. So yeah, he's really in deep with his mom. That's some crazy things. To say your mom? Yeah. I got drained sexually. (laughs) (laughs) He also sent her a copy of the letter that he sent to his wife. Yeah, right. Just to be like, just so you know, because I think the the arrangement that he wanted was like, I don't really want you as a wife, but I will be here as like a part of this family. Yeah. Like he doesn't want the institution of marriage, that bond. Yeah. But he wants the he wants the kids and he wants the office so he's like i'll live i think that was the kind of idea and just to clarify what you're saying is that his accomplishments in europe did not transfer back to the u.s i think that what we can say is that the work he did in europe and the retrospective that he made have this like place in history Uh uh-huh so in the historical record the work that he did yeah was was important was important but significant in terms of money yeah he was failing to get commissions. Got it. Okay. I yeah. Understand. And his reputation yeah. was ruined in yeah. Oak Park, which is like where he, yeah, his whole thing. <laughs> He's was. literally trying to make houses for his neighbors. Right. Exactly. Like Oak if Park. anyone's interested, you go to Oak Park, the, the, his museum is there. And then you just walk through the neighborhood and go look at all of these incredible, like historical houses. Mm-hmm. Like it's really is, um, geographically centered. So, Frank Lloyd Wright comes back to Oak Park and maybe an attempt to reconcile on some level with Catherine and try to rebuild this life. Mm-hmm. He and Mayma have kind of split ways. She stayed in Europe for a while and he's living in Oak Park. And his uncle dies on his mother's side. So this is the uncle that used to bring the truckloads of food Mm. to the house. Mm -hmm. So he's known this uncle his whole life. He dies. And with that is revealed that this uncle who was pretty judgy is actually drowning in debt Uh and had lost all of the family property in Mm -hmm. the valley that his family had settled. The land that was lost actually looked over something the locals called the Valley of the God Almighty Joneses because 
uh, Anna's clan, which is the Lloyd Joneses, mm-hmm. settled the valley. So that's how storied oh, wow. that family is. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And now the now the Joneses have finally lost the land. They finally lost the land. Okay. So Frank Lloyd Wright decides to give his mother the money to buy thirty acres of land in the valley of the Joneses mm-hmm. to build his dream estate. Okay. So the time that Frank Lloyd Wright spent, quote unquote, reconciling with Catherine, he was just designing this house. (laughs) Mama comes back. She divorces Edwin Cheney. He gets the custody of their two children on grounds of abandonment Mm because she's just been Yeah, because she literally abandoned them. (laughs) Seems pretty uh, justified. And as soon as the house is ready, Frank Lloyd Wright leaves Catherine again and moves Mama into the palatial estate that he calls the Taliesin which is Shining Brow and Welsh. Hmm. What? Shining Brow and Welsh? Like Shining Brow in the language, like, Welsh. Oh, that's the name. Okay. All right. I wasn't sure what you were talking about right there. (laughs) It's, uh, you usually name these estates. These estates have names, right? Yes, and his is, what's the word again? It's called Taliesin. And it means Shining Brow in Welsh. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had to play catch up. You're so lucky I married you. (laughs) Now, everything for Frank Lloyd Wright is awesome. Okay. He's built this insane, beautiful estate Mm -hmm. that's in a lot of ways an homage to his work Mm -hmm. or at least the best thing that he feels like he's ever made part of that is because he grew up around this valley Mm -hmm. and he knows the land really well so he designed this estate into the land so it's this really naturalistic expression of what he does and there's fountains and Mm -hmm. driveways and flowers and landscaping i mean it's a really amazing piece of work and he's got his mama, right? Yeah. She's there. His mama, his like mommy is there too. She's <laughs> living on the property or near the property. Yeah. And he decides in celebration of his powerful life, he invites the Chicago Tribune to, to Taliesin to defend himself and to talk about marital slavery and free love. What? He wants to just say, everybody's been talking about him, right? Like the press has been like, oh, you left your wife for the second time. Oh, you yeah. absconded to this love nest in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. People are calling it a love nest. They're like locals are kind of grossed out by it. People uh-huh. are super judgy about this. Oh, and by marital slavery, you mean that he was a slave to marriage. Exactly. That's, the slave to the institution okay. of marriage. Okay. So he created this. I just think it was like not a really good idea, but (laughs) he created this whole thing. So he's got this beautiful house. He has this new lover, you know, he's not divorced. He's like publicly still married. Everyone in Chicago knows who he is, who his family is. And he invites the Chicago Tribune to come in and interview him about how his life choices are really awesome. And he and Mema are wearing these like sexy silk robes and his (laughs) is bright red. (laughs) I feel like he's way ahead of his time. This sounds like some like 60s shit, you know, know. like 50s sort of like Frank Sinatra-esque thing. I mean, it's like, uh, what's the thing with Hugh Hefner and the movie, I mean, the TV show he had? Yeah. The Bunnies? Whatever. Yeah. I get it. House of Love? I don't know, know, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, he's got the silk robe, so that's Hefner for sure. So he did this whole thing. It went 
pretty badly. He got massacred in the press. <laughs> One of the quotes that he said that was totally unprompted yeah. in this article, this interview, he said, I want to say this. Laws and rules are made for the average. The ordinary man cannot live without rules to guide his conduct. It is infinitely more difficult to live without rules. But that is what really honest, sincere thinking man is compelled to do. <laughs> and I think when a man has displayed some spiritual power, has given concrete evidence of his ability to see and feel the higher and better things of life, we ought to go slow in deciding he has acted badly. I feel like anyone who would say that genuinely must have just been so sideswiped by the adverse reaction that it warranted. I know. <laughs> like, you like, must have really not seen the, the negativity coming. I mean, I think in intellectual circles and certain circles that yeah. they were running in, you know, people, there was a lot of validation for that line of thinking. Right. And there's, you know, aside from how horrific it is to leave your wife of X amount of years and yeah. your six kids. Right. I mean, it's terrible. And to do it so publicly and to humiliate her and to do those things, I'm not trying to justify that in any way. Right. But, you know, it's hard when you're exposed to these new ideas and like these new philosophies that now, you know, are, uh, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, nowadays, that guy could just not get married. Right. And no one would think he was a weirdo. Right. You know or I mean? if he did get married and then leave his wife, his wife might have like a way of earning money for herself right. or having some sense of, you know, uh, in independence or something. Or his wife might feel powerful and like able to say, I don't want to be married to someone who treats me like this, yeah. you know, and, and not sit there and think that this is my savior in this life. Right. Stay married to this man. I mean, everyone's got obviously like divorce is such a painful thing and marriage is really difficult. And I, I love the institution of marriage for yeah, me, yeah. but I need, now we know that that's just not for everyone, but I don't think that they had a choice in that at that time. Right. You know, or you make that choice when you're so young, you don't have exposure to think that you have other options. Yeah. So, you know, on some level it's, I don't think that there's this way of being like, puritanically being like oh you should never do those things right you know i mean i think the consequences were so gross and horrible of their actions because of choices that they made when they weren't even aware there was another option well and not to repeat myself but that is what happened in his childhood i mean he's just doing what he saw right, other he married he's, people do right he's he's trained to do that his mommy hates you know, Catherine. Yeah, Catherine. So yeah. it's like, <laughs> he's yeah. probably doing something his mommy's really into. Yeah, I mean, right. who knows? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> so despite the article or the interview and all mm. of those things, Kitty's still not granting a divorce. Uh -huh. So they're still married and Chicago and Wisconsin after those things came out, were just scandalized. Uh -huh. I mean, Tallison, the estate, was mm -hmm. in this little town called Spring Green. There were only 730 people who lived there, and they were all super religious sort of farmers and people who lived in this rural community. So people were really right. anti-adultery. Yeah. And they were really annoyed that this super famous man had built this super famous house of adultery in the middle of their town. Yeah. Right. So there was a lot of pushback from the community. Mm -hmm. And then of course, like Chicago just ripped them apart and we're like, yeah, know, right. It was in all the papers. They called it a love nest. And Frank Lloyd Wright 
didn't receive another commission until 1913. So it was like almost two years where nobody wanted to give him any work until someone gave him the commission of the Midway Gardens. So this building is doesn't exist. Now it was torn mm-hmm. down, I think, in 1929 or something like that because they just couldn't financially get it off the ground. I mean, this is right before the Great Depression mm. and everything. Midway Gardens was this massive project on Chicago's South Side. It was this indoor, outdoor, year-round concert venue with multiple restaurants and bars. It was this huge, huge sort of mammoth project. Yeah. So that basically is, you know, the a big career revitalizer. Sure. Hell yeah. They're like, we hate you. Actually, would you mind just doing this entire part of the city for us? Right. And so it's this huge project at this really crucial point in Frank Lloyd Wright's career. Yeah. So on August 15th, 1914, Frank Lloyd Wright and his son, John were in Chicago and they were frantically putting the finishing touches on Midway Gardens for the grand opening. They were sleeping on piles of wood shavings in their office and working 14 hour days, Mm -hmm. just painting murals and doing all of these different things to put the finishing touches on the space. Uh And they get a call from one of Wright's friends. His name is Frank Roth in Wisconsin. And he calls to say, Taliesin is on fire. On August 15th, 1914, on this day in Spring Green, Wisconsin, it was this super dry, hot summer day with really clear skies. There were 11 people working in Taliesin. So it was Mama, and she was overseeing the estate. And then her two kids were there visiting for the summer. So it was Martha, who's eight at this point, and John, who's 12. And then they were there. They're bored. They don't have any friends there. It's Mm -hmm. like... A boring place to be. Yeah. There's six workers, draftsmen and laborers, and a landscaper. And they were all working on different projects. A couple, of, one of them had their son with them mm-hmm. working on different things. Sounds like it was operating as an office for Frank Lloyd, right? Yeah. As so well people as, were still working uh-huh. on the space, but there were definitely draftsmen working on other projects. Mm-hmm. There was a landscaper there working on this space. So mm-hmm. it was kind of still in progress. Okay. Always, I think, they're, he's working and adding things. He's done that to his residences mm-hmm. or known to have done that to his residences over time. Cool. So there are those workers. And then there's also a married couple who were employed as the property servants. And that's Julian Carlton, who was the butler or slash handyman, and Gertrude Carlton, who worked in the kitchen and she was the cook mm-hmm. um, and worked around the estates. They're kind of Jacks of all trade. Sure. The Carltons came from Alabama, although at times Julian would claim to be from the West Indies or Barbados. Mm -hmm. I think part of that was that the Civil War had just ended. Mm -hmm. And so he would identify himself as being like an immigrant rather Mm -hmm. than like a child of slaves who or Mm -hmm. like someone who was born into slavery. Yeah. Um, But regardless, there's kind of this ambiguity around what his where he was from but his birth certificate says alabama all right they moved to chicago and they worked there for a couple years and while they were there they worked for a friend of frank lloyd wright's they did really well for him Mm -hmm. he was a like a cook and they did catering for him so he sent them to frank lloyd wright really highly recommended Uh and they'd been working there for a couple months but they had just recently put in their notice And people were kind of surprised, but it was fine. It was kind of a temporary position anyway. Yeah. So the morning passed by slowly. The kids are bored. Uh, Martha had a friend coming over after lunch. So she's just sort of passing the time until her friend comes. And 
the group at Talison is just working on different projects. Gertrude makes lunch, and at one point, Julian Carlton found this soiled rug, and he goes and he asks a worker for some gas to clean the stain out, which I didn't know. I guess that's an old-timey thing. <laughs> but <Okay. laughs> he used to use that to like clean mm-hmm. out stubborn stains and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And then shortly after preparing lunch, Gertrude Carlton leaves the food for Julian to serve and then exits the kitchen. So the two parties sit down for lunch in two separate rooms. That's kind of the custom that they had at the estate. So the workers are in this far western sitting room with these beautiful windows that look over a pond and Mm -hmm. some other different like landscaping things. I think originally meant to be Anna's sitting room in their house. Mm -hmm. And Mama goes to this screened terrace that's off the family dining room. And that's made for hot days. So you can kind of catch breezes coming through. Uh Uh-huh. And Mama's sitting at the head of the table and the children are seated at other, either side of her and they're alone in one side. So Julian Carlton enters the terrace and he serves the soup and he's wearing a formal butler's uniform and he ladles the soup in each of the bowls. And then Julian pulls out a hatchet <gasps> and hits Mama in the back of the head oh. and splits her skull Directly down the middle. Oh and my. Kills her instantly. God. <laughs> so then he turns around, he strikes John in the forehead and kills him instantly. And Martha, who's eight, gets up and she runs out of the terrace and she runs down this like flowered, bordered courtyard and down the driveway. And Julian catches her way at the end of the driveway and hits her with a hatchet until she falls and she ends up dying hours later. But at this point he's hit her like on her head and oh, her eye God. and all this kind of stuff. So she's lying in the driveway. Damn. So then Julian walks across the courtyard and past the rolled up rug and the pail of gasoline and he enters the door to the kitchen. So he finds the pot of soup that Gertrude had left on the stove and he brings it to the Western sitting room where the workers are dining. So he serves the soup and he leaves the room through the courtyard door. And they don't know what it's happened yet. They have no idea. And they bar, he bars the door from the outside as he leaves. So now it's barred. The guys are all eating, they're talking, they're chatting. And then a 30 year old architectural draftsman named Herbert Fritz notices a bunch of liquid splash underneath the door. And it's coming from the courtyard, so he assumes that Julian had knocked over a bucket of soapy water while but it's cleaning the, the gas? courtyard until he smells the gas. So later in a police interview, Gertrude says she was out kind of doing some stuff, and then she walked back through the courtyard to the kitchen and saw Julian cleaning the rug mm-hmm. and light his pipe yeah. and start cleaning the rug. So when she entered the kitchen, she starts smelling smoke and she sees the house is just on fire. Yeah. So she goes back to her room. She puts on her best hat and she heads to the basement to get out of the house. And after finding all the basement doors barred shut, she goes upstairs, dives out of a first floor window and just runs away from Taliesin towards the town of Spring Green. Whoa. So. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay. So he. All right. So. Sorry, continue. Okay, so the gas is lit from the other side of the door and the room 
that the diners are in, that workers are in, just explodes. So at this point, everyone in the room is on fire. And the three people closest to the door try to break it down after finding it locked. So Julian is waiting on the other side with the hatchet, planning to kill anyone who escapes. So fully on fire, Herbert Fritz sees the men who saw the gasoline, the draftsman. He sees the pond down the hill where mm-hmm. the, the windows are overlooking. And he just impulsively jumps through the window. It's about a story and a half off the ground. Yeah. And he falls out of the window. He breaks his arm. And then he just starts rolling down the hill to put out the flames towards the water. He just thinks, I'm going to just try to put out the, the water. So Julian can start to see, I guess from the way that the room was designed, there's a place where he can see through a screen that the men are escaping out of this back window and ruining his plans because he didn't want any survivors. Yeah, it sounds like not. Then another draftsman, a man named Emile Brodel, who was Frank Lloyd Wright's favorite draftsman. He was mm-hmm. really close, kind of like a mentee to mm-hmm. him. Started to escape through the same window. And Julian grabs the hatchet and runs around the side of the house. Now, at this point, Herbert Fritz is now at the bottom of the hill, right? So he's put his clothes out. They're no longer on fire, but he's really badly burned and his arm is broken. And he's looking up the hill to the estate And he sees Emil jump out of the window just as Julian is running toward him from the back of the house with the hatchet. And then he sees Julian murder Emil with the hatchet just as he lands. So I'm imagining this guy in a full butler outfit that at this point is probably also covered Covered in in blood. blood. Yeah. Running around with a hatchet killing everyone who's trying to get out of this burning building. Like, I can only see this through the lens of like a Coen Brothers film know, or maybe like Parasite or something. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, I mean, it's like, it's so violent. It's just so violent, but also in the setting of this like highly designed cinematic, like the aesthetics of it to me are shocking. I don't know. Okay, please continue. Yeah, no, I mean, it's really shocking. It's heartbreaking. And then it's also just so... I mean, it's the pinnacle of this architect's career, like this amazing yeah. estate that he's made that's designed yeah. in every single element. Right. You know, and all the people that he loves are in this house and all the people that his favorite carpenter yeah, and right, his favorite yeah. draftsman and yeah. the people who are the closest to him that are working from his home. Right. Not working somewhere else. Right. You know? Okay. So Herbert Fritz sees Julian turn and run back to the house. And of course he says, I have to now go back to the house and see if I can help anyone at the house. So even though he's super burned and his arms broken, he starts running back up the house towards Mm -hmm. the fire to see if he can help those guys get out of that burning room Mm -hmm. or fight off Julian, whatever he thinks he can do. Yeah. So by the time Julian gets to the drawing room door, the men have actually broken down the door and are escaping into the courtyard and they're all on fire. And at this point, Julian apparently gets like rattled, right? Because his plan is a little falling apart. His Mm -hmm. plan was just to hit people as soon as they came out of the door. Yeah. But now everyone has escaped. Yeah. So he goes and attacks Billy Weston, who's this 35-year-old carpenter, Uh, with the hatchet, but he's holding it backwards. So he hits Billy, but it actually just knocks him out. Mm -hmm. So he's still alive. And the same thing with 66-year-old father of 10, Tom Bunker. He hits this guy and he passes out, but it's the wrong end of the thing. Yeah. So at this point, 
Julian takes a beat. He writes the hatchet blade and he strikes Billy Weston's 13-year-old son, Ernest, who had ridden up to Taliesin to help his dad for the day. And he turns and he hits the Swedish landscaper, David Lindblom, on the back of the head after which he chases down Tom Bunker, who's woken up, and then chops him in the back of the head. So Herbert Fritz manages to get back to the courtyard just in time to witness the entire mass murder, and he just faints in the corner of the courtyard. And Julian Carlton then takes the remaining gas back to the screened-in dining terrace and douses the room and lights the bodies of Mema and John on fire, plus like that whole residential side of the estate. So a super messed up fact is based on corner reports and these different historical uh, reconstructions. At this point in the murder spree, it's really likely that most of the people in the courtyard were actually still alive, Mm -hmm. including eight-year-old Martha, she was still alive, whose body had then been caught on fire from being in the courtyard, So she, but she was still alive at that point. Right, so she had just been brutally attacked and then was lying there suffering and then burned to death. Pretty much. And John, Mema, Billy Weston's son, Ernest, and Emile Brodell were all dead, but the other four people were still alive at this mm. point in the courtyard. And Julian Carlton then takes this bottle of hydrochloric acid that he had purchased earlier in the day and he disappears. He's gone. What does that acid do? Uh, It's corrosive. Uh So I think it's really similar to stomach acid. It's like a corrosive acid. So So it could be used to like dissolve a murder weapon or like dissolve a person. I think it could be used to dissolve a person. It wasn't a really big bottle. It's a small Mm -hmm. bottle. Mm -hmm. But he had bought it earlier in preparation for this day. Okay. And then he leaves. And his wife is gone. Gertrude. She left. She ran away. I mean, the whole thing happened really quickly, like in the in the span of 10 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but she's gone. And just at the risk of a spoiler alert, Gertrude is like innocent and doesn't, had no idea. You know, I'll talk about that later. Okay. All right. We'll get there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Back in Chicago, Frank Lloyd Wright and his son, John, are rushing to catch this train back to Wisconsin with only the news that Taliesin is on fire. That's the only thing that they know. And they get to the train platform and they see Mama's ex-husband, Edwin Cheney, waiting for the same train. Mm -hmm. So obviously... Word is out. Word is out, whatever. Also super awkward because they haven't seen each other since the whole thing went down with him. Mema, but people don't really know what's happening. They just know that Taliesin is on fire. Yeah. And then Edwin knows that his kids are at this estate. Yeah. So they shake hands and they get sworn by reporters. And so they jump into the same train compartment to avoid the reporters. So now they have to make this epic journey. I think it's like 12 hours or something together in the same tiny train compartment to get to the estate. But, and the reporters didn't know about the death. They, the reporters also are just like, what's up with the fire? Everybody is just, it's chaos, right? But they don't have any extra information. Yeah. So they jump into the same train compartment with Frank's son, John, and they all head to Wisconsin and they didn't really speak for the entire time. But at each stop, the train made, they got a new piece of information because reporters are out there and things are happening. So they're doing this 10 hour journey 
And at every stop, it's like three people are dead, five people are dead. And they're going through and they're identifying people. So by the time he gets to Madison, Wisconsin, he is refusing to leave the train car. So he has family there to meet him. And then there's reporters everywhere. And he's so devastated by this like long sort of inching meeting out of information. That is such a nightmare. Yeah. That is crazy. So he stays with Edwin Cheney in this train car and they just finish the rest of the journey. It's two more hours to get to Spring Green and they just stay in this this uh, train compartment. Oh my God. Can you imagine the thoughts going through your mind? It's almost like purgatory, but you just keep learning things and then you're like, oh, this isn't purgatory. Oh, these this is all the layers of hell. Like that is a psychological vice grip to be put into just this imagine the tightening on your psyche yeah 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 it's pretty it's really intense yeah so earlier in the day while frank and cheney were kind of making this hellish journey towards wisconsin Mm -hmm. a very dazed and burnt man at tallison regains consciousness and that's billy weston Mm -hmm. so frank lloyd wright really often said Billy Weston was the best carpenter he'd ever seen. He's this like tall, lean, natural carpenter. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said that, you know, his work was incredible. And even though he was in super rough shape and really badly burned, he's the first one to wake up. So Herbert Fritz is in the corner, right? Yeah. And he's passed out. So he's probably, the even though he has a broken arm, he's probably the most able-bodied because he's the only one who didn't get hit with the axe. Mm -hmm. Everyone else has been hit in the head with the axe at this point. Right, with the blade. With the blade. So Billy wakes up. Actually, sorry, Billy Weston was hit with the back of the axe. Right. And passed out. He was not hit with the blade. That's what I'm saying. Everyone else was hit with the blade. Yeah. Everyone else was hit with the blade. And then Herbert Fritz was not hit at all. Okay, okay, okay. So Herbert's in the corner. Nobody knows if he's dead Oh, right. He's the one that fainted. Exactly. Got it. Okay. So Billy Weston wakes up, and the only person who he can kind of wake up is David Lindblom, the landscaper. He's a Swedish landscaper. And despite his head wound, which was really bad, they both were totally, their skulls were like cracked, he was able to stand up and make this journey with Billy to get to the neighbor to call the police. Uh So they run about a half mile to the neighbor's house. They call the police. And then Billy, with the fortitude of like a thousand men, runs back to Towson and sprays the house down with the garden hose. He's trying to keep it from Mm. burning to the ground. Yeah. So he actually ended up saving a portion of like a wing of Taliesin. Mm -hmm. The whole thing didn't burn down, but the whole residential wing burned down. So by this time, all these townsfolk that live in Spring Green are starting to show up in crowds to help. And they're pulling bodies out of the courtyard and they're covering them with sheets and they form like this bucket brigade to try to put the fire out. Um, they go and they find Mama's body in the dining room and it's just burned beyond recognition. And John's body was burned so badly. It was just mostly ashes and bones because the fire had burned so hot in yeah. that terrace. And he was, you know, a young kid. Right. Now, John Williams, the county sheriff, shows up and he's a super formidable guy. He's got a bunch of people and he puts a posse together to find Julian Carlton. So everyone fans out to find Julian and... 
all of the townspeople take the bodies and move them to the estate next door. So they wrap the bodies mm-hmm. in sheets and they bring them to the estate next door. And a lot of the people who were fighting the fire were also burned. So they were all moved to the estate next door to just be rest in cots and have their wounds sort of be seen to. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the volunteers are fanning out to try to find Carlton somewhere in the estate or off in the woods. They find Gertrude running down the street. They arrest her and they're just trying to figure out what's going on. So a lot of time actually goes by. They don't find Julian Carlton anywhere. Mm -hmm. And around five o'clock in the evening, a volunteer is poking around in the basement and he finds Julian Carlton crouched on all fours, hiding in the asbestos lined furnace. So it is like Parasite. So he's down there because of the fire. It's protected against the fire. It's an asbestos lined furnace. So he's hoping that that will protect him from getting burned. And then the idea is that probably he just thought once everybody leaves, he can climb out of the furnace and run, run away. Yeah. So before Sheriff Williams can get to him, Julian drinks the entire bottle of hydrochloric acid he had in his pocket. Mm. So the sheriff pulls him out of the furnace and he's still holding the hatchet and he just whispers acid. This is, you know, and he can't speak very well. It's like yeah. his voice from now on is just like really croaky because yeah. the acid's just going to burn so much of the inside of his body. Yeah. And the townspeople are all outside yeah. waiting for the sheriff to pull him up. He pulls him out of the basement, drags him upstairs And the townspeople are pretty much at this point a violent mob. Yeah. They want vigilante justice. When Julian sees this angry crowd of people, he whispers to the sheriff, they better let me live if they expect to find out something. So Sheriff Williams, who's this big burly guy, pulls out his gun and points it at the crowd (laughs) to get to the cop car. So he's like holding julian carlson who's not a super big guy yeah and is really in bad shape after drinking yeah. the acid has this gun and forces his way through the crowd to the cop car i'm missing something the acid was an immediate suicide why did he do it to ruin his voice i th- think that he may have thought it was more deadly than it was uh-huh. so it can be deadly and yeah. the thing that it can do from what i've read is eat through your esophagus, eat through your stomach lining, um, like cause infections mm-hmm. and cause sepsis. So it's not like drinking straight up poison. Mm-hmm. It's more like destroying your stomach and uh. your esophagus. So it's not, a, depending on the strength of the acid, yeah. it's not like an immediate death. And right. I think, I don't think that anybody knows my guess is that he miscalculated how right. potent the thing was that he was drinking. And he may have also not understood that that would have been a really painful way to die. Yeah. And that is very slow. Right. So it was like sort of a planned murder-suicide if he got caught. He was really good at the murder part, but really bad at the suicide part. I think that that's a great way of putting it. Okay, great. So he's being dragged to the cop so car. So he's being gra- dragged to the cop car. With this sheriff who has his gun yeah. on this angry mob who wants to kill him, kill right. Julian Carlton. They get in the cop car and they start driving and the mob all gets in their cars and they go on this super high speed chase. So they're driving. Oh, so they're chasing down the cop. They're chasing down the sheriff. Right. <laughs> As And they're all in this high speed <sighs> chase driving after him. And right. they give up. So they make it to the jail safely. 
Uh-huh. Uh, the mob kind of disperses. And they book Julian Carlton into the jail. And they give him milk for his acid throat mm-hmm. and whiskey for his pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just back in the day when they were like, just give them the, the two liquids we know sort of help people. Well, we're all humans, right? And yeah. so a lot of these stories to me, like you start talking about them and they feel modern in some way because yeah. we're all just people. Yeah. But then sometimes there's these details and you're like, oh, that's right. old times. Right, totally. Milk for your throat, and whiskey this, for your pain. Yeah, totally. We're now approaching midnight on the same day. Mm-hmm. So the train carrying Frank Lloyd Wright and Edwin Cheney finally pulls into the station. And Frank Lloyd Wright comes out to speak to reporters for the first time. And the Chicago Tribune ran this quote. He said, the Carltons, Julian and his wife, were the best servants I have ever seen. The wife cooked, and Julian was a general handyman. They were Cuban Negroes, and Julian especially seemed to have an intelligence above the average and a good education for one of his class. Three days ago, when I last saw him, he seemed perfectly normal. He must have lost his mind, and yet I cannot believe that the news is true. So even as he got to the train station and spoke to the press... He was like, this can't be right. He was like, this can't be right. But he also was talking favorably about the Carltons. Right. Edwin John and Frank Lloyd Wright then got into a car with some relatives and they drove to Towson to view the damage and then continued on to the neighbor's house where the bodies were arranged outside in the courtyard under sheets. So the whole party sleeps at this neighbor's estate. So in the morning... Edwin Cheney and Frank Lloyd Wright have breakfast together after their long train ride together. And then they walk over to see Taliesin to look at the damage. Frank Lloyd Wright was followed by a Chicago Tribune reporter who Mm -hmm. said he just kept picking up different pieces of priceless art that was in the wing. So he'd be like, this is a $250 vase and pick up this thing. And he's like, this is a sheaf of priceless Japanese prints. Right. Um, And, promising that he would rebuild on the site. And that's basically all he was talking about. And in the afternoon, Edwin Cheney left town with a small box containing the remains of Martha and John mixed together because the bodies were so burned, they were small enough to keep in one little box that he could just fit, you know, carry. Oh, devastating. God damn. And Frank Lloyd Wright prepared to bury Mema at Spring Green in his family's property. So Edwin Cheney didn't stay for Mama's funeral. He headed home to have his children cremated and he didn't hold a funeral for them. And when asked if he would be involved in the prosecution of Julian Carlton, he just said no. On the train platform, reporters asked Edwin Cheney what he thought Carlton's motivation was and whether Edwin believed some of the rumors that had been floating around the murders. People were basically saying they thought Frank Lloyd Wright may have something to do with it, like either have put up Julian Carlton oh. for the murders or uh. had done something to Julian Carlton to make him snap to commit the murders. Yeah. Edwin just said, the quote is, I am sure he was insane and that there was no other reason. Yeah. And then he boarded the train and headed back to Oak Park. And that was the end of his story with Mema. Okay. Frank Lloyd Wright then spent the rest of the afternoon cutting all the flowers down at Tallison. Like everything. Mm-hmm. And that's like a huge feat. Most of them Mema planted. So yeah. There's nasturtiums, like all these bright, kind of beautiful summer flowers that were out there. God, that is so 
weirdly poetic. Well, hold on to your underpants. Okay. So then he has a carpenter build a plain casket out of white pine. And he fills the casket with all of the, like a bunch of the flowers, as many yeah. as he can fit in there. And then he and John lift Mamie's sheet wrapped body and they put it into the coffin and they nail it shut. And then they put the coffin in a horse drowned cart and they fill the whole cart with the rest of the flowers. Yeah. So it's a giant mountain of flowers. And they drive the cart to the grounds of his family's Unity Chapel, their Unitarian Chapel, with Frank Lloyd Wright's two cousins. And they place the casket in a grave that they had dug. Mm -hmm. And no one says any words. And Frank just sends his son and his two young cousins away. And he just spends the entire night filling the grave himself. So he buries her himself. Oh, my God. And that grave still remains unmarked. And then... He walked home, which I just think is like, I mean, it's a, it's very poetic. I mean, I think more than any other episode we've done so far, this one feels too real to be true or something like it just feels so everything is so cinematic, you know, that it has that air of, of a creation <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about. Like a lot of these stories, this is this story is a hundred years old. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of this information comes from Frank Lloyd Wright's autobiographies mm -hmm. and writings and mm -hmm. then, you know, ways in which we eulogize certain situations. Sure. And then the book that I read is really great at kind of pointing to the facts. But mm -hmm. even the newspapers back then, you know, would run stories with details that are just not true but right. very poetic sure so it's an interesting thing yeah like the book tried hard to include the facts that were mostly verifiable yeah and like i'm trying to skip over stuff that like seems like it's speculation yeah but at the same time it's a hundred years old and it's been told so many times right i'm sure that the blush of you know like there's something that's uh is cinematic about it right you know but it's also through the eyes of a very artistic man right a yeah. famously artistic man you yeah. know who shaped architecture in the united states right so you know i mean he's gonna fill a wagon full of flowers and have two horses pull the wagon yeah. into the temple and like bury his wife himself i mean the whole thing yeah, is leave like, it unmarked and walk home yeah alone. in the dark yeah yeah, he said it was very cathartic. I was going to say I can imagine why, but I don't know if I can, actually. I don't think that's what... It's funny, because with you, I feel like your dream burial, which you've told me, yeah. is that you play Nina Simone's and I'm feeling good, <laughs> yeah. but only as your body's being lowered into the grave. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> if I'm around, I will honor that wish. But yeah. I feel like yours would be like less... I mean, it's cinematic in its own way. Yeah, it would just right. be a lot less muted. You well, know? if you want to just fill my grave with flowers and fill it in yourself with then dirt and then walk home by yourself and leave me unmarked, I'll, I'll respect that too. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm too tired. <laughs> so three days later on a Tuesday, 
David Lindblom and Tom Bunker die of their injuries. Mm. So that brings the total to seven, the death toll to seven with two survivors. Before he leaves Wisconsin, Frank Lloyd Wright writes this pretty famous open letter called To My Neighbors Mm -hmm. that was published on August 20th. So that's six days after the murders. Wow. And it's sort of a eulogy to Mama as well as a straight-up attack on the press for their sensationalist coverage the Sunday after the murders. Because remember, the murders happened on a Saturday. Yeah. And then on the Sunday, it was like, murder strikes, love nest in Wisconsin. Oh, right. And he's been so vilified by them this whole time. Exactly. And if you're looking at this kind of puritanical, religious sort of lens that we're looking at things through at this time, it's people are saying, oh, you know, you're... Chickens have come home to roost. Right. You know, oh, you deserved this, or this is the result of sinful behavior. Sure. So that was a huge angle to the coverage happening. Yeah. So he read all of that after he buried his lover. Right. And wrote this op-ed that he got the Chicago Tribune to run. Mm -hmm. And he also sort of addresses the townspeople being super judgy and mm-hmm. judgy about he and Mamus' lifestyle. Yeah. So he definitely thanked everyone for their help during the fire, but he also put in little things like <laughs> one quote is, no community anywhere could have received the trying circumstances of her life among you in a more high-minded way. I believe at no time has anything been shown her as she moved in your midst but courtesy and sympathy. Which is not true. Right. Like he's kind of being like, I'm glad you were so nice to her. You yeah, know? right. Thank you for being so kind right. and understanding. Uh, so people definitely were like, I don't like his tone. <laughs> well, I, yeah, but you know, screw them. I, I mean, know, I think, right? Yeah, I think he gets to write a salty letter. It was a little, it was sassy. It was yeah. a little salty. I'm and feeling then, like he's entirely justified. Right. And then at the end of the whole thing, he adds this piece about like, don't worry. I'll be back because there is this sentiment. I think people were thinking, you know, you're Icarus. You flew Mm -hmm. too close to the sun. You came to our community, Mm -hmm. you know, with your white girlfriend and you defiled our community by building a love nest here and God burned it down. And like, that's the sentiment about like thinking, okay, now he's going to be done and he's going to go back to his wife. And so he does cap off the letter by being like, Oh no, don't worry. I'll be back. Sure. Don't worry about me. I'll be back. Right. And uh, after the letters published, he moves back to Oak park to live in the little house that his mother had bought. Mm -hmm. um, That was next to his family, but Mm -hmm. he doesn't see anybody. He doesn't see Catherine, doesn't see his kids, refuses to see Anna who was pissed and uh, he just stayed in this little house with his housekeeper. He lost a ton of weight. Yeah. And he started having to wear glasses for the first time. And he broke out everywhere in stress boils. So he had boils all over his body. Oh. Um, and then he just kind of stayed there for mm-hmm. a while. So Julian Carlton. Let's break this down. What the hell is going on with Julian Carlton? So he's locked up in a jail in Spring Green, Wisconsin, and he has really extensive injuries from drinking this acid. Yeah. And everyone just wants to know why. Why did you do it? Yeah. So Julian's story was that he and the draftsman, Emil Brodell, the Mm -hmm. one who had fallen out of the window second, that he had gotten right after... Um, he had fallen out of the window. Yeah. Had gotten into two altercations. So one of them was on 
August 13th. They got into a fight about whether or not Julian would saddle his horse. Like they got into some fight about saddling this horse. Okay. We're yelling at each other. The next morning, the day of the murders, they got into another argument. And what Julian Carlton says is that Brodell hit him Mm -hmm. and was yelling at him and attacked him for like half an hour in the morning of the murders. Yeah. So... Julian Carlton says that he murdered him in retaliation. And then he says the fire was an accident because he was lighting a pipe and smoking it while he was cleaning a rug and it accidentally set the house on fire. And then when police ask about the other six people he murdered, he just doesn't say anything. He doesn't Mm -hmm. respond to that. And with Billy Weston and Herbert Fritz surviving and able to give eyewitness testimony about all the murders that happened that day, Julian's motives or his excuse just seemed really thin. Well, because if I have my facts right, he actually killed Mama and the children first. Yeah. Kind of turns out that no one to this day really knows why Julian committed the murders because he died seven weeks later, right before he was supposed to stand trial. Mm -hmm. So nobody technically knows why. So one motive could have been money. There's a couple of things. One of them is Frank Lloyd Wright was like really notorious for messing around with people's wages. Mm-hmm. He just wouldn't pay people on time and didn't really care. You know, it, to him, it didn't affect him that much. And right. There was a high level of people quitting attrition with his draftsmen because mm-hmm. he just wouldn't pay them. So mm-hmm. people would just leave. So that's one thing is they thought maybe... Frank Lloyd Wright had been messing with his wages or not paying him on time. Yeah. The other reason could have been an abrupt firing. So Frank Lloyd Wright was quoted a few times as saying, I think I mentioned this earlier, saying the Carltons had recently quit. Yeah. And they lost their last day actually should have been Saturday, the day of the murders. Mm -hmm. So when she was interviewed by police, Gertrude Carlton said Julian had forced her to tell Mama that she was, missing Chicago too much and she was too lonely in the country and she wanted to leave. And at this point, Frank Lloyd Wright had already put a notice in the paper for servants to take over for the Carltons. So the idea might be that knowing that the Carltons were leaving, Mama and Julian might have had an argument and she had fired him early, mm-hmm. you know, but none of that actually makes a lot of sense based mm-hmm. on the fact that he was still there serving her that day. Right. Another thought was from John Lloyd Wright, Frank's son, who (laughs) wrote a a biography about his father that's, I think, universally panned. It's just about, like, how his daddy is amazing. It's like, my father who walks on earth. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And in that, John's... Literally calling him God. Yeah. It's like, come on, man. Uh, But in that one, John talks a lot about how what he viewed to be these, like, puritanical asshole farms people that lived in Mm -hmm. the community like having sermons that were against his father yeah and that he thinks that these religious people in the community radicalized julian carlton and he heard some sort of sermon and you know they encouraged him in some way to commit this murder in response to the sinning that's happening there yeah now there's literally no evidence of that john's really into that theory but there's just nothing that points to that yeah and then the last sort of theory was that frank lloyd wright himself put carlton up to up to it on some level yeah like he 
made him do it, paid him, tried to get him to do Is it. Is there any theories that maybe Edwin did that to to pay back Mama for leaving him? No. That's kind of a crazy idea. No. Nick. Well, That's it seems one. like I mean, he, but I get I get what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's the quiet guy that like easily shrugs his shoulder and gives up. That's the one you have to watch for in the end. Yeah, I mean, they didn't come up with that, but. And what about the uh, the family that recommended the Carltons? Did they ever say like, "Oh yeah, oops, I forgot one time we caught Julian in this like crazy rage or something"? Now Julian. I think for the most part has like a squeaky clean reputation with his employers. Uh So that's one thing that's true is that people were like, I cannot believe this. He's well-spoken. He's intelligent. You know, he's resourceful. He's like, I mean, glowing reviews and people just couldn't understand. They say he just snapped one day or something like that. Sheriff Williams, the guy who kind of rescued him, he publicly said, I do not believe the Negro is insane. He's like, I don't believe this man is crazy. He's fine around the jail cell. And one of the survivors, Billy Weston, who put out the fire, he told the Wisconsin State Journal Carlton had been there for two months and he had been pleasant. Like these guys <laughs> yeah. had like no beef. Yeah. And no one could back up this whole like that he's been fighting with Emil. Regardless of the Emil bit, it turns out Frank Lloyd Wright was right on some level. Uh-huh. Uh, like after the sheriff said he's not insane, then Julian Carlton attacked him with a bucket and they had to restrain him. <laughs> yeah. And like now things are starting to come out. I mean, I'll, I'm sorry. I look, you put someone up to a murder. Maybe they poison him. Maybe he burns down the house and locks the doors, chasing people down with hatchets and like hatcheting children to death. Like something snapped in this person. Yeah. And it, he actually has a history of mental instability that nobody knows about. Yeah, right? yeah. So back in Chicago, when he was living there, he had this reputation among his neighbors for being kind of a terrifying guy. Uh-huh. So one of his friends, Maurice Dorsey, she's a friend of um, Gertrude's, yeah. his wife. She says, I remember one time I gave a whist party, which is like a card game. And he was playing all of a sudden he jumped up and let out a yell that scared us all nearly to death. All the women started running out thinking he had gone crazy. But then he sat down trembling and mumbled a few words of apology and then just kept playing the game. So like he's in a room full of people start screaming and they're just like, what? And then he's like, no, 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 forget that. My bad. I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) And, you know, other neighbors in their neighborhood would say um, Gertrude would run to their house to hide from him because he would just not because he was abusing her, but because he would just go and have these episodes where he would just be scary, really scary and yeah. like detached from reality. Essentially. Right. He was really obsessed with money and not having enough money and mm-hmm. like that kind of thing. Yeah. You get on these like cyclical thought processes. Yeah. And then later a farmhand at Talison told police that Carlton had this reputation for flying off the handle. And the night before the murder, yeah. he came into David Lindblom's room. who's the landscaper and he had a butcher knife and he like went into David's room and sat down and had this butcher knife and like had this intense conversation with him and yeah. then left the room. Yeah. So like they all know 
what's up? Yeah. You know, on some level, the people who work with him on the workers level, yeah. even below the draftsmen, but the landscapers yeah. and the people who farm hands, people who work there, I think a lot of them know what's up, but they just didn't say anything. Yeah, right. And he kept it hidden from his fancy employers yeah. the whole time. Right. Until he didn't. Gertrude said when she was in custody, she said a lot of things, but mainly the things she said over and over again, it's like he's been insane for two years. And moving to Tallison. I think really exacerbated the situation. They were the only black people at Tallison mm-hmm. and probably in the town as yeah. far as this book knew. Yeah. Really isolated in a rural area for mm-hmm. the first time in a while, right? There's nobody around. Yeah. And Gertrude said he just started getting super, super paranoid. Yeah. So he would yell at her and, you know, be a little violent towards her, but he was sleeping with the hatchet for a while before uh, any of this stuff happened. Yeah. And she said he stopped sleeping yeah. and he would just stare out at like the field, stay up all night, just yeah. staring out the window at the fields, you know, I don't know, paranoid or whatever. And he yeah. would be talking about how people were out to get him and everyone was bullying him and picking on him. But his reputation at this place was really good. Right. You know, people were like, oh, he's so great. We yeah. love this guy. Probably the confrontation with Emil happened mm-hmm. so it's not to say that that didn't happen but i mean yeah. that's no reason i mean it doesn't no, at it, all lead to the motivation to of kill course not seven people of course not. in that just, way i was just wondering if he was on any level giving speaking truths i think in that level the problem was what they say is that he's just really erratic in the prison so sometimes he says stuff and it's verifiably untrue yeah. and lies yeah and then other times he's confessing he keeps confessing different yeah. things and those things could be true but aren't necessarily verifiable yeah and then on top of that you know he's incredibly ill like his health is deteriorating but he also is pretending to be crazy so meaning that like not crazy, but um, uh, like he doesn't comprehend. Yeah. So he's doing things like fake fainting, mm-hmm. like different types of things. And then he's not eating and doctors keep examining him and saying he's he has like some injuries, but he should be fine. Yeah. But also it's like 1914. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, what do these doctors know? They're yeah, not right. setting him through an MRI. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? It's like he's probably actually really, really ill. Yeah. But he's like not eating and then he'd eat like huge amounts of food and then not eat. They would try to put him through different court processes and he would faint, but then yeah. it would be kind of clear that he was faking it. Yeah. And then sometimes he would sit there and he would eat piles of fruit, drink water. He had mm-hmm. like snacks, you know, so he was yeah. doing that. But then he would go back to his cell and not eat anything. So right. it's confusing because like part of it is probably he was mentally ill and really injured. Yeah. But then there's another piece that a lot of the stuff that he was doing and the lies that he was telling seemed calculated to give him a lesser sentence. Sure. And right. also he had a plan to escape Talison after the murder. So he had planned. Right. And apparently he had also planted some change of clothes in the woods. Mm. So it looked like he was really going to yeah, it was like premeditated. He had a exactly. couple exit strategy strategies, whatever. What's the word? Go for it, baby. Str- strategy? Yeah. Strategy. <laughs> wow. That was well, okay. Uh, yeah, whatever happened to Gertrude? She didn't get charged with anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the reason why I said it's like, was she culpable? Like knowing that he was sleeping with the hatchet, 
saying everyone's trying to attack him. Yeah. One newspaper, again, this is like these new newspapers make up a lot of stuff, but one yeah. newspaper has her quoted as saying he just was walking around the house talking about how he wanted to kill everyone. And I was yeah. like, oh, I got to get out of here. Yeah. So I think it sounds likely that she saw him with the pipe in the rug and was like, I know he's not that dumb and walked by him and went to the kitchen and while she was in the kitchen, she saw that the house exploded into flames. She's and she's like, like, I'm getting out of here. I got to grab my hat. Yeah. I'm, I'm going. She I'm knows going. who did it. Yeah. You know, right. I think she knew it was a ticking time bomb. Yeah. And that she had to get out of there as fast as she could. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. So how did Julian actually end up dying? During pretrial proceedings, he was just really sick, mm-hmm. but no one could tell how bad he was. Mm-hmm. And the judge ordered some doctors to look at him and they couldn't figure it out. Basically, at the end of the day, Julian was acting purposefully confused mm-hmm. and the jailers didn't know what to do. He was acting like he didn't understand anything that was going yeah. on. So the judge went to Julian's cell and sat down with him and talked with him. His conclusion was that Julian was of sound mind and could stand trial. But it seemed like Julian was in poor health. Mm -hmm. So he decided on the day he was supposed to enter his plea, he decided to let Julian enter the plea of not guilty and then postpone the trial for him to get better. And then a week later, he died. Yeah. Nobody knew exactly what was going on, but he went into jail weighing 145 pounds. Yeah. And he died weighing 90 pounds. Yeah, right. So it's insane. It's insane. And I'm sure that he couldn't eat or digest his food. Yeah. And they don't have the medical equipment to be able to even tell what's going on. Sounds like he starved to death. Yeah. That's basically what people say. Yeah. So that's it. Frank Lloyd Wright's massive career continues on. Um, This is an interesting thing that uh, I've read is that some historians and like architectural sort of experts think that after the murders, Frank Lloyd Wright's designs became way more like a fortress. Like mm. Those types of like labyrinthine fortress designs kind of came after that time. Interesting. And based on his really intense influence over American architecture, it seems like the murders themselves influenced American architecture for decades. I can't believe I never knew this. <laughs> I can't believe it. I seriously, I mean, he's... Okay, let's just go ahead and say it. He's the most famous architect in American history. Yeah. You'd think maybe there might be. I mean, I you know, Abraham Lincoln gets assassinated in a at a play. You know, like you learn certain things along the way. You'd yeah. think that that would be more common knowledge. I know. It's kind of, it's like, I don't know why it got, I mean, it got erased because it's really brutal. But I mean, it was one of the, biggest mass murders in Wisconsin history for a really long time until guns were more of a thing. But mm. I mean, it's still huge. It actually, just as a side note, yeah, Wisconsin has a lot of, they have Jeffrey Dahmer, uh-huh. who's a serial killer. They have Ed Gain, mm-hmm. um, who is one of the early serial killers who used to murder women and then make clothes out of their organs Mm -hmm. so we had like a belt (laughs) that was made out of nipples and like skin shade lamps like like he's huge in pop culture it's like chainsaw massacre was Uh you know 
patterned after him and Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. You know, like there's all these different people. Wisconsin, huh? Yeah, Wisconsin's got like the breeding ground. But that was it. I mean, it was like historical crime in Wisconsin for years and years and years. It's I mean, like, I've been to Frank Lloyd Wright Museum. I've gone on tours. We went to that exhibit in New York. Like sometimes you'll see a little blip. Like when I was reading sort of excerpts from his life trying to figure out who he was married to at what yeah. time, they would say, oh, the tragedy at Taliesin. Yeah. But that's kind of a little footnote. Yeah, I mean, a tragedy could be a car accident. I thought or his wife an ac- died there. Or an like, accidental fire. Yeah, right. You don't think like, what? What? Yeah. Damn. So, yeah, then, uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's a little addendum. Uh-huh. In 1922, eight years after the murders, Catherine Wright finally granted Frank Lloyd Wright a divorce. Oh. And then he married his mistress, Miriam Noel, who oh, he's been with the whole time. Come on, man. He's over here having stress boils. I mean, I get it, but. Okay. Ah, yeah, you know. In 1923, Frank Lloyd Wright's epic ass mother, Anna, died. Uh-huh. In 1924, Frank Lloyd Wright was separated from his second wife, Miriam, due to her heroin addiction. And then he met Olga Hinzenberg and hooked up with her, resulting in a daughter named Lavana. And they actually ended up staying married for, well, they weren't married at this point. Yeah, right. <laughs> he was still married to Miriam. It was <sighs> uh, a, a rough couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. So as well, his mom died and then his second wife had a heroin addiction, yeah. left that, right. met a new woman, Yes. had a baby out of wedlock. Named Lavana. Lavana, which I love that That's name. That's a great name. Yeah. And then in 1925, Taliesin burned to the ground again. And he rebuilt it and named it Taliesin Three. Oh my God. What happened the second time? Well, the second... Oh, <laughs> so dumb i was like what do you mean the second burn down yeah it was an electrical wire issue and it burned down i think the same area the residential was the uh local people nicer to him that time or were they like see i told you you know i don't know i feel like he lives in the god almighty valley of the joneses so on some level it's just he's already made his power move i mean the valley itself like is his blood sweat and tears yeah and then he owns this house and he's like yeah, burn it down. I'll build a third one. Is the third one still there? Yeah. And then in 1928, Frank Lloyd Wright finally divorced Miriam and married his third wife slash fourth life partner, Olga. <sighs> Did he get to live happily ever after After that, at least? Well, he stayed married to Olga for the rest of his life, and uh-huh. he had two other kids with her and adopted one. So I think he seemed happy. Wow. So he actually wanted children at the end of it all? You know, I think no one, including Frank Lloyd Wright, really knows what he wants. Yeah. I think that my hot take on it is if you think that marriage is a trap and whatever, just don't get married again. (laughs) Right. Yeah, but maybe I mean who knows like when you really look at things that happened back then I mean maybe there's just property rights and you know tons of different reasons why legally getting married is kind of the only way to go and like the way that we do partnerships now just wouldn't have worked at all back then I don't really know I mean I'm sure they existed 
most of my friends have long-term relationships and they don't get married. We were together for 10 years before we got married. I yeah. feel like, I'm like, why don't you just not have any more kids and not get married? Yeah. But that's not in the card for old Frankie. He uh. is a glutton for the punishment, <laughs> I guess. I don't really understand that piece of it. Yeah. But he likes getting married, you know? Well, RIP everyone who died in that house. That is just so drastic. Yeah. I just stumbled upon this and I was like, how did I never hear about this yeah. in my life? And I grew up going to Oak Park and Frank Lloyd Wright buildings too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. We know all the Al Capone stories. Yeah. We know all the mistresses of Al Capone's gangsters. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like we know about, and we know a lot about Frank Lloyd Wright. I've seen all, yeah. I've seen tons of his famous buildings and stuff yeah. like that. It's so weird that that is not as much of a common knowledge thing. All right. Well, how'd you learn about it? What are your sources? Oh, <laughs> well, I was going to say the internet. <laughs> For this story, I read Death in a Prairie House, Frank Lloyd Wright and the Towson Murders by William R. Drennan. There's a lot of really interesting information in this book. There yeah. are great old pictures from the newspaper articles, mm -hmm. and it goes a little more in depth into his life before and after the murders. So mm -hmm. you get a better sense of the scope of his career. It's just mm -hmm. something like I just can't fully get into. Right. Like well, this. it sounds like Mama had a really interesting life too. And we barely scratched that surface. Yeah. Mama had a super interesting life. Yeah. I mean, his, all of his wives were really interesting. Yeah. So there's a lot of information that is just not possible to include. So if you're more interested in like the scope yeah. of this person's life. This is a really fun book to read. And when Muriel says she read this book, I'm telling you, that's what she's been doing the last two days. This girl's been reading this book. <laughs> Good work, you psycho. Well, it's only 200 pages. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. How <laughs> did take over your life? <laughs> Listen, man. <laughs> I'll be thinking. I'm thinking. Checking your phone. <laughs> I gotta have my decompression period. <laughs> Every 15 minutes. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research and I did all the engineering, editing, and post-production. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. One of our recent episodes is about Daniel LaPlante, a man who terrorized a family by living in their walls. <laughs> we also draw and animate little bonus content cartoons for Muriel's murders so find us at muriel's murders on instagram twitter youtube and tiktok if you want to see animations that i draw that muriel draws that we collaborate on together we're really proud of them check us out yeah they're real good our dms are open and you can email us at murals at gmail.com we want to hear from you please if you like this podcast rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. And we read those reviews and they make our hearts uh, really swell with joy. Yeah. Uh, also, our music is by Mario Castellini. You can find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Muriel, please check out our non-murder podcast, Hella in Your 30s. Comes out every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.